When trying to reason with faithful believers, especially religious extremists like creationists, we keep hearing the same old arguments over and over and over again, even though we know they've already been shown to be false, fraudulent, and or fallacious probably by everyone who's ever seen them. If you keep it up, you'll suspect that those who keep repeating these must surely know by now that all of these points have already been refuted a thousand times. I'm R.N. Ra, and this is The Pratt List. The first item on the Pratt list is a biggie. It's the God of the Gaps fallacy, which imagines that science can't explain it, therefore God. And that means exactly the same thing as, I don't understand it, so I guess it must be magic. And by magic, I mean all supernatural things traditionally and typically described as magical. Curses, potions, enchantments, incantations, necromancy, golem spells, transformation, exorcism, purification rituals, weather control, ghosts, demons, angels, fire-breathing dragons, faith-healing, forecasting, water-bending, and all other supernatural manifestations or conjurations such as the Bible repeatedly describes. The reason you can't tell the difference between divine miracles and genie magic is because there is no difference. They're the same thing. If magic was real, then characters like Spock or Gandalf or Obi-Wan would be able to demonstrate that in some reliable way. Parapsychologists would have actual ectoplasm that you can study in the lab, and faith healers would work in hospitals healing amputees. But the reason none of that has happened is because none of it is real. That's why we have dozens of children dying every year because their parents prayed for them instead of seeking medical attention. Prayer is no different than, in fact, it's the same thing as wishing upon a star, which is why it doesn't work. That's why prophetic seers never predict anything accurately, and religious apologists are always scientifically and historically, ethically and morally absolutely wrong about absolutely everything. You get more reliable results from a magic eight ball, and that's just a toy based on random chance. If it's unexplained by science, that doesn't mean it's explained by magic. If science can't explain it, religion can't explain it either. Gods and magic don't explain anything anyway. Believers say you can't explain everything without God, but they can't explain anything with God. All defenders of the faith can do is pretend to know things they don't know and assert empty, baseless speculation as though it were fact. In other words, they can make up lies and talk out of their ass, but that's about it. Now, once upon a time when everything was unexplained by science, our ancestors believed that thunder, lightning, and volcanoes were gods in action, that comets were an omen, that the stars and planets had human characteristics, that sickness was a curse of witchcraft, and that epilepsy was demonic possession. But all those assertions of superstitious nonsense were already wrong even before science could give us the real answers. In each case, the reality was a revelation of whole new fields of study, previously unimagined and vastly more complex than anyone's imagined deity. No doubt that pattern will continue, such that if we ever learn the cause of the Big Bang, or complete explanations for the origin of life, the universe, and everything, they'll each be a wealth of new information with practical application and so advanced as to render our previous belief in gods, ghosts, and magic just as laughably silly as every other field of study so far has already shown. The God of the Gaps refers to the gaps in our understanding. The more science can explain, the fewer pockets of ignorance there are for God to hide in. That's why God once lived on a mountain until we climbed it, then he moved to the clouds until we could fly, and now he has to hide in another dimension that doesn't exist either, so that we'll never be able to prove he was never there, even though he was never anywhere other than right here. The God of the Gaps is a logical fallacy composed of a combination of other logical fallacies, beginning with question begging. This is the circular argument routing back to the assumed conclusion. Asking who created the universe, for example, presupposes that someone created it when that's not even possible. 
Before you can say that anything is possible, there has to be some precedent or parallel or verified phenomenon indicating that such possibility exists. Until you can show there's such a possibility, there isn't one, and God is thus not possible. It's not just that these other things can't exist without God, it's that God himself cannot exist. So everything that does and is requires another explanation, one that actually is an explanation, providing a mechanism that isn't magic, that is supported by evidence, which God isn't, and which accounts for all the facts, which God doesn't. Tide goes in, tide goes out. God can't explain that. The other logical fallacies that make up the God of the gaps are the arguments from ignorance and incredulity. Incredulity says, I can't believe it, therefore it isn't true. But reality stubbornly persists regardless whether you want to accept it or not. Real things don't care if you believe in them. In all the universe, the only thing that requires or desires your faith is a con man trying to exploit your confidence. Deceivers seek believers. You might think that the argument from ignorance might be something like, I never heard of such a thing, so that can't be true. But no, that's actually another combination of fallacies, beginning with false dichotomy. That, is, that if it's not this, then it's got to be that, because I'm not even going to consider that there might be other options. Of course, there usually are other options, and the right answer is often one of them. Religion encourages all sorts of unverifiable and immaterial subjective opinions based on ignorant emotions, but it never produces anything we can objectively show to be true. There's never been one time in the history of history where religion ever turned out to be right about anything. Knowledge differs from mere belief in that knowledge is testable with measurable accuracy, allowing ways to show which position is right or wrong or more accurate. So the only things we actually know are the things we can show with science. That's why I say that science doesn't know everything, religion doesn't know anything. The second item on the Pratt list is a combination of them in the fallacy of false equivalence, presenting the illusion that the only two alternatives being presented are somehow equally valid or two sides of the same coin. You might think that these are both comparable opinions being weighed on a scale, but no. When we're talking about science versus pseudoscience or the denial of science by religious extremists like creationists who object to scientific principles and methodology, there is no comparison. They're not even opposites. We're talking about testable scientific data supported by everything everywhere, no matter what you want to believe, versus a book of fables that is not supported by anything anywhere and can neither be indicated nor vindicated, verified or falsified, and can only be believed by the obstinate will of desperate pretenders. They want to be like, you have your beliefs and I have mine, but no, it's not like that at all. Believers treat belief as an act of will, of mind over matter, the power of positive thought, that you can change reality if you just believe hard enough. So their position is literally make-believe, compared to what is objectively demonstrably true. Our position is not mere belief, it's knowledge, and as I said in the previous video, they don't know what they pretend to know. We can prove that we do. So here's how they construct the illusion of false equivalence. First, because many different independent fields of scientific study all concord with each other and align against the lunatic fringe who deny reality and believe in fairy tales over what we can prove to be true, then the wanna believers must conflate evolution, abiogenesis, Big Bang cosmology, plate tectonics, phylogenetics, and all other related sciences and put them all in the same box as if there's only one opposing position. Which is actually correct if the choices are reasonable versus unreasonable, honest versus dishonest, because this really is fact versus fantasy, literally. And it would be inappropriately polite to say that there's anything more than that.
Then defenders of the faith dismiss or ignore all other religions as if theirs is the only one to be considered, and they even ignore believers in their own religion who are factually accurate, dismissing them with the no true Scotsman fallacy, thus conflating science with atheism too. And then they conflate atheism with communism, nihilism, and devil worship, but that'll be the subject of another video. Now we have a false dichotomy. Then they label the demonstrably true side evolutionism, as if accepting reality is just another religious belief, and they present the inane ravings of ignorant superstitious primitives as though that were the word of God and the absolute truth, despite everything wrong with all that. At this point, they can dip into a bucket of other lies to imply that science is just as bad as religion, or that religion is just as good as science. It's an Orwellian revision in labeling the lack of faith as just a different faith and the rejection of science as an alternative science with alternative theories based on alternative facts, which of course means that they're not facts, not theories, and not science. And this is where you hear the lies that faith is based on evidence just like science is, and science depends on faith just like religion does, and we both have the same evidence, we're just interpreting it differently. But no, none of that is true either. Believers don't even care about evidence, and science is the antithesis of faith because it requires an evidentiary basis for all postulations, and all hypotheses must be testable and potentially falsifiable. Faith can't and won't conform to any of that. And now comes the equivocation fallacy, where everything is redefined, often into its opposite, or where different contexts are deceptively alternated. For example, religious extremists will say that science relies on faith because faith is no more than trust. But that's false. Faith is more than trust. It's a complete trust that is not based on evidence, meaning there's no reason to believe it, but they believe it anyway. Science has to have a body of facts to back it up. Some believers accept the definition of faith as provided by every definitive or authoritative source and thus admit they believe impossible nonsense for no good reason. And somehow they're okay with that. Others want to reverse the definition of faith, pretending that it is a belief that is based on evidence. However, in each such case, they will either try to say that I don't have evidence and they don't have enough faith to believe as I do without that, which is an admission that I was right, that faith really is a belief that is not based on evidence and they knew that already. Or I'll challenge them to show me what evidence convinced them to believe as they do and what evidence would change their mind. These believers will not honestly answer either question because evaluating evidence was never how they got there in the first place, and they're determined not to be swayed by it either. And that's why creationist organizations publish statements of faith as if this were something to be proud of, wherein they admit they've assumed their conclusion without reason and will defend it against all reason so that no amount of proof will ever change their minds. That is the very opposite of science, and that is why I say that faith is the most dishonest position it is possible to have. I've run into many religious believers who insist they have evidence for their faith, but they very often redefine evidence too, such that even logical fallacies like the God of the gaps can be considered a reason to believe, because the way they define it, evidence is not evident, because facts are not factual, and nothing can ever be objectively verified. Historians use a slightly different application when comparing interpretations of historic records, but otherwise, the same fact cannot be evidence of two different mutually exclusive conclusions at the same time. A fact is just a point of data, and if it's not objectively verifiable, then it's not a fact. And it doesn't become evidence until it indicates or eliminates one option over another. If you don't believe me, look it up. 
The fact that we can observe evolution happening, both micro and macro, whether we're tracing it to the genome or the fossil record, or seeing evolutionary developments recapitulated in developmental sequences in embryo, or actually watching organisms evolve in real time into new species and controlled conditions in the lab, these facts are evidence of evolution. They are not also evidence of creation by any possible interpretation. Our growing lists of beneficial mutations and transitional species in our phylogenetic classification among the other apes and many, many other examples of the demonstrable facts of evolution are also evidence of it because these facts are positively indicative of and exclusively concordant with evolution while being inconsistent with and contradicting creationism which has no facts indicating it whatsoever. So we do not both have the same evidence. There is no evidence for creation, nor for the fables in the Bible, nor for God either. Not even the circular argument of looking at a sunset and imagining that God did it. After 20 years as an anti-theist activist advocating science education, working with, debating with, and learning from professional scientists and theologians, sometimes both in the same person, if anyone had evidence of gods or souls or miracles or psionic powers, I'd know about it by now. We all would. There was never a time when God wasn't allowed in schools. Students were always allowed to believe in whatever God they liked and even pray to them. No one cares if your kids talk to themselves or their imaginary friends as long as it's not indicative of an actual mental disorder and they're not disrupting the class. Is this God so petty that he would allow violent criminality wherever they don't pray to him? And many evangelicals say yes, he is that petty. But even if God wasn't allowed in schools, he certainly allowed in church, right? Yet there are mass shootings and other assorted murders that keep happening in churches too. So what's the excuse for why God allows so much violence in his own holy temple? Some religious extremists complain that public schools are not allowed to fool sequestered children into believing in a single state-supported religion. And no one should want that anyway, certainly not in a land that promises religious freedom. And some believers complain that public schools might teach forbidden knowledge and they don't want the kids to know the truth or understand reality. So they homeschool them and send them to private schools so that what they'll be taught will only be censored and laced with all the desired lies instead, everything they want the child to believe rather than know. But science is not a religion. The truth is what the facts are. That's what they're teaching, and every student has a right to know the truth, regardless whether they later choose to reject that in favor of faith, which is also their right. Although, it would be best if they followed the example given in Christian scriptures and they only did their praying secretly in the privacy of their own room, like the Bible says. But they can still also be hypocrites and declare their prayers for all to see, though the Bible says they'll receive no reward in heaven if they do. So maybe we shouldn't force them to. There was a time when state-funded public schools forced their pupils to begin each day by reciting ten verses of a King James Bible. Students had no choice. They were denied their First Amendment rights and had to recite these or hear them out, and they had to do it reverently, required to respect and impose religious belief or be punished. Imagine your children being forced to hear and revere someone else's religion every day, no matter what you say. And sometimes if parents raised a stink over their kids having to go through this daily inculcation, that student would be segregated or even ostracized from the rest of the class. That's what happens whenever the state even seems like it has a favorite religious denomination. Everyone else becomes second-class citizens, having to bow to whatever the state-endorsed religion is.
This was not only an annoyance to atheist kids having to waste their morning reciting lines from irrelevant fables and having to be respectful of it when they don't even believe in God and they have a right not to. It was also a violation of the freedom of religion for Hindu, Buddhist, and Sikh kids who may believe in a different God, as well as Muslim or Jewish kids who believe in a different version of God, and even for Christian kids whose churches may object to the King James Version or who might object to their children receiving religious instruction from a chemistry teacher or a gym coach of the wrong denomination, to say nothing of the rights of the teacher, who might be Jewish or atheist or pagan or Mormon, yet has to lead a mixed bag of different religions in prayer to the Christian God, regardless what anyone's religion is or rights are in that classroom. Some American Christians have told me that freedom of religion pertains only to Christians, and that you're only free to believe in Christianity, and that you're not free to believe otherwise. This too is a lie, but if a lie is repeated often enough, people will believe it, and that's what this is all about. This repetition is inculcation of impressionable children, even against the will of their parents. This is also why even little kids are forced to pledge allegiance when they don't even know what that means. It's a similar form of cultural conditioning imposed by people who pretend to believe in free will, but deny that in others and prevent it in children. Remember also that demographics change. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world right now and has been for decades, while over that same period Christianity has been in a general state of decline worldwide and even in the U.S., the last stronghold for Christian religion in the West. That means that Islam will eclipse Christianity soon, and not just in the rest of the world, but even in America. So whatever laws you make on behalf of your own religion today will only pave the way for the next dominant religion tomorrow. How will you feel then about your Christian kids or their Jewish teacher reciting ten verses from the Quran every morning before being forced to pray to Allah, especially knowing that teachers will be fired if they don't comply? Wouldn't it be better if we didn't force other people's kids to recite the mantras of any one faith? Wouldn't it be better if we didn't try to force one religion onto everyone, depriving them of their right to believe what they will according to their own conscience? The Founding Fathers knew full well from myriad examples throughout history how all religions are divisive and persecute each other and how this is always exacerbated when any one of them seizes power over the state to then impose the government religion onto everyone else. Our Founders knew that the only way to have freedom of religion was to guarantee freedom from it as well, and that's why they did not found this country on any Judeo-Christian values, but instead created the first ever secular government, where Congress shall make no law even respecting an establishment of religion, which they knew would invariably also prohibit the free exercise thereof. If you agree with this sentiment, then your problem is not that God was kicked out of school because that never happened. Your problem is that your particular religious views aren't being forced onto everyone else's kids. Prayer was never banned in school either. The people who say it was are lying. What really happened was the Supreme Court ruled that state-endorsed schools cannot violate your First Amendment rights as a parent to control which religion your children have to hear and respect and obey. Public schools are for education, not indoctrination. You have the right not to be forced to pray to someone else's God. You should be thankful for that and stop telling lies like this. When defenders of the faith realize they have no valid or reasonable argument, they try to end discussion with an escape excuse, where they say that atheists secretly know that there really is a God, but we pretend there isn't one because we love sin. I must have heard this nonsense a hundred times, but every part of that claim is wrong. First of all, it implies that even things we don't believe are still beliefs, as if not believing that something is true or exists means believing it's false or does not exist. 
The context here is that whether you believe or not is still an act of faith either way, as if no one was ever convinced by the facts, even of things they didn't want to know, but are honest enough to accept. That's what reasonable people do, and that's why they say that the truth hurts and is inconvenient and that the facts are cold and hard. The truth may set you free, but first it might piss you off. And likewise, it is never wise to believe anything claimed by another without question, without reservation, or without reason. Having no reason to believe something is a pretty good reason not to believe it, and being thus unconvinced is precisely what it means to have no faith at all. Not doing something is the default position over doing anything, including existing. You can have positive and negative feelings about something, like giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down on YouTube, but if you don't like a Facebook post, it doesn't mean you clicked dislike. That's not even an option, because it doesn't need to be. If you didn't like it, you didn't like it. Same goes for belief. If I don't convince you, then you won't believe me. It doesn't mean that you necessarily believe I'm wrong. You could withhold judgment on that, which means you still wouldn't believe me until or unless I convince you to make up your mind. In this sense, belief is a conviction, and a lack of belief is a lack of conviction. And if you don't know whether it's true or not, then you are obviously not convinced. You don't believe. And most atheists are in this category, and I was too for much of my life. However, I realize now that I can honestly say that I know there is no God. And no one knows there is a God. Belief does not equal knowledge. And while it is not always possible to prove a negative, or disprove a negative, whichever that is, I know that there is no God, in the same way and to the same degree that I know there are no leprechauns. It's not just that there's no evidence of them, but also because it is impossible for such things to exist. It is physically impossible to simply wish things into existence. It is logically impossible for something in the image of an evolved ape to exist prior to the evolution of apes, and it is definitively impossible for a disembodied mind to exist absent the brain that created it, because that's what a mind is, the knowledge, notions, and memories produced by a brain. If God exists outside our reality, then he does not exist in reality. If God is beyond time, then at no time does God exist. And before we can know whether something is possible, we must have some precedent or parallel or verified phenomenon indicating that possibility. If we can't show that such possibility exists, then we can't honestly say that it does, because it evidently doesn't, and neither does God. Next is the notion of sin. What is that? As some people think that anything that feels good or tastes good is sin, but somehow unnecessarily excessive violence is not always. Depends on who you ask, because every believer seems to have a different idea, and every religion contradicts all the others, even though they all claim to have the same objective source. We'll talk more about that in another video. For the moment, remember that in Abrahamic religions, divorce is strictly forbidden, except when it's okay, and murder is forbidden too, except that you're supposed to kill people who are working on weekends. Because Friday through Saturday and Sunday are all Sabbath to somebody, all according to the same God who reportedly says that virtually every sin is punishable by death, and you're obliged to do that yourself. Sin is supposed to be breaking the laws of God, and everybody does that except those who realize that there are no laws given by God because there is no God. And his laws would be unenforceable, unjust, and indefensibly insane anyway. We have to obey the laws of men instead, and we atheists do a much better job of that than believers do. Statistically, there is a negative correlation between religiosity and moral behavior. And now that the irreligious nuns account for a quarter of the U.S. population, we are still, for whatever reason, remarkably underrepresented in the prison population.
The factions of dominant religions statistically have the highest crime rate, with special emphasis on hate crimes. Instead of turning the other cheek and forgiving those who trespass against us, religious people are more likely to condone the killing or torture of prisoners, where non-religious people are more likely to consider that morally wrong. Now, being atheist doesn't make you a good person, but it doesn't make you a bad person either, just like belief in God obviously doesn't make anyone good, nor does it necessarily make you evil. But embracing either religious or political ideologies can grossly distort your morality. The most religious countries tend to have the highest murder rates, and the same is true of the most religious areas of the United States. The higher the religiosity in a given populace, the higher the rates of violent crime. Nations that are more secular show the opposite tendency, where the less religious they are, the more peaceful they tend to be. Here in the United States, evangelical Christians have the highest divorce rate. They also have the highest rates of teen pregnancy, especially in areas where they taught abstinence only instead of offering sex education. Students in private schools where evolution is not taught are statistically more likely to get an abortion than their peers in public schools where evolution is taught. This is an indictment of religious hypocrisy and it shows what a colossal failure the policies of the religious right have always been. But it gets even worse than that. Child Protective Services and other agencies report that a significant majority of child abusers and molesters identify as very religious. And the more religious they are, the worse offenders they are, with worse offenses against more and younger victims. Yet, religious people argue that the less religious we are, the less moral we are, which is obviously false, just like everything else they believe. These people think that their God mandates morality? That he judges people by how good or bad they are? If that were true, then the Bible would offer some provision wherein atheists could get into heaven if they're good and kind and charitable, as many of them are. But that's not what the Bible says. It says it doesn't matter how evil you are. All sins will be forgiven if you but believe. But if you don't believe, then it doesn't matter how good you are. Because the only sin that will not be forgiven is the sin of disbelief. Your good works are like filthy rags. And you're supposed to believe all this on faith. Which means there's no reason to believe it at all. You swallow what you're told just because you're told to. And you dare not question the reason why. Thus, gullibility is the sole criteria for redemption. Then there's the notion that God will just go away if you ignore him, meaning that even believers seem to accept that if you don't believe in God, then he doesn't exist. But if he really did exist, then we're smart enough to realize that we can't just wish him away. And we know that nothing pisses him off more than when people don't believe in him. That's the one thing that guarantees that you'll go to hell. It's also another indication that this is just a game of pretend. But it wouldn't make any sense to pretend he's not real if he really is. So if you love your sin, then accept Jesus as your imaginary friend and keep on doing what you're doing because he'll forgive you as long as you make believe that he will. But if you can't pretend that things are true when you know they couldn't possibly be, and you say, as I do, that there is no God, you'd better be damn sure of that. And I am, because I have good reason to be.